0: Welcome to the All for Literacy podcast, hosted by Dr. Liz Brooke. Welcoming established and emerging voices in literacy education and the science of reading. Explore with us the connections between literacy research, educators' knowledge and skills, and the implementation into classroom instruction.
1: When students enter secondary settings with those kinds of gaps, Every time they're in class, they are faced with feeling ill-prepared to meet the demands of what they're being asked to do.
0: You just heard Rhonda Nelson, the Curriculum, Instruction, and Assessment Coordinator for the Bettendorf Community School District in Bettendorf, Iowa. Today, Rhonda joins Dr. Liz Brooke to discuss supporting teachers in their work to improve adolescent literacy. Here's your host, Liz Brooke. Thank you for joining us today as we kickstart a new effort for the All for Literacy podcast. Throughout 2023, our guests repeatedly raised the issue of connecting new and established research with the educators who are actually applying those ideas in our schools. So as we look forward, it is essential that information and conversation flow both ways, from research to the classroom and that classroom experience back to the researchers. Today, I am joined by Rhonda Nelson, the Curriculum, Instruction, and Assessment Coordinator for Bettendorf Community School District in Bettendorf, Iowa. Welcome, Rhonda, and thank you so much for spending some
1: time with me today. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. Great. I
0: always love to start off these conversations by asking what inspired your interest in education and maybe literacy specifically?
1: Well, I always knew I wanted to be a teacher. In my family, we have generations of educators along the way, And in fact, I waited until my own children were old enough to be school age to finish my degree and have my student teaching experiences because I wanted to have the most recent teacher prep information that I could. So I spent the next 10 years working as a long-term and short-term guest teacher for Bettendorf Schools. And then I found myself in a full-time position in first grade. And it turns out that I was very ill-prepared to teach children how to read and write effectively. So I have often heard Dr. Tracy Whedon describe COVID as the COVID chrysalis, which I find to be (laughs) a very hopeful way to look at it. And that was definitely true for me. When hybrid learning and the thrust into technology-driven tier one instruction with first graders happened, it encouraged me to go back to get my master's degree in instructional design and technology, which is where I stumbled upon the treasure trove of reading research that was hiding from me in plain sight. (laughs) And that paired with access to podcasts and webinars and the investigative reporting of Emily Hanford led me to Mount St. Joseph, where I got my dyslexia certificate and am now one of their doctoral students in reading science.
0: Wow. There's so many things you said there I can relate to. As our viewers and listeners might remember, I started as a first grade teacher and had not been trained with that treasure trove, as you've said. And my mom was also a teacher for 35 years. So that also was inspiring to me. But I love that idea of the COVID chrysalis that you said Dr. Whedon has shared. And so as you've gone back to continue your education, have you continued your work in Bettendorf?
1: Right. So I started my master's degree and then I was lucky enough. We used some of our COVID relief dollars and it sent me through letters training and it was just myself, one of our academic interventionists, and an instructional coach. So there were three of us at our building site at the elementary I was working. And I got in the mix of it, and I was working very closely with my instructional coach and that academic interventionist. And we realized just how powerful the bridge to practice opportunities were from that training. And so I went to my building principal and I said, We need more people to do this. This is what is missing. We have to do more of this for more people. And so luckily, my principal at the time was on board with using building funds to send more of us through. And surprisingly, truthfully, when we first were going to invite some teachers to join us, you remember, I mean just how much we had on our plates then, managing all these things. This was 2020, 2021. We were yeah. still in the throes of it all. Part of the pandemic, yeah. Yes. Luckily, 13 more of our K-2 teachers and coaches and interventionists wanted to go through that training. And then I thought, well, this is great for our building, but the district needs this. <laughs> so I became very close friends with our district superintendent, Dr. Michelle Morse, and I said, Look at what is happening to my instruction. And then it's expanding and more teachers need this. So I designed a plan, an implementation plan for how we could roll this out at the district level. And she was always very interested and always wanted to align our practices with that. And it took a lot of persistence, a lot of tenacity, a lot of extra meetings. And so now that's where I find myself Having left the classroom, last year I served as the MTSS Literacy Facilitator, and now I'm in Curriculum and Instruction and Assessment with my Executive Director, Jamie Olson. So it's been a very nice career path for me that I didn't really anticipate when I started back when COVID first began. Yeah, so.
0: Wow. And just for our listeners, MTSS is the Multi-Tiered System of Support, or RTI, a lot of districts talk about. You started to tell us a little bit about the Bettendorf Community School District, but can you share a little bit more? I love the fact that the superintendent was on board with getting your educators the knowledge. But yeah, just share a little bit with our listeners about the school district.
1: Sure. So we serve just over 4,400 students from preschool through 12th grade. We have five elementary schools and one middle school and one high school. And I'm fortunate enough to serve 300 teachers. And it's a really nice district, meaning it's large enough that we have a lot of personality and a lot of differentiated needs in our different sites but it's small enough that we can really implement change relatively quickly and get alignment in our system. We came out of a period of time where we didn't have an aligned tier one curriculum. So classroom teachers were doing the best they could to create standards-based material and lessons, but we were missing that cohesiveness across our elementaries, which our middle school and high school could definitely feel when they all came together into that from five elementaries to one middle school and high school. So that sense changed as well, which I'm sure we'll get into.
0: Yes, yes. Wow. No, thanks for giving us that background. And like you said, you know, the opportunities and the challenges of being a smaller district, there's some, again, benefits and some things that are harder. And so it's amazing that you wrote that plan and got that enacted. And it's such a powerful thing as you learned when you taught first grade, when I learned when I taught first grade, not having that knowledge, especially in those critical younger years, but we'll also talk about the older students as well. So as we think about those older students Everybody in the education space, I think, is aware of our nation's report card. It's sometimes called NAEP. But that's often where you see the literacy rates, right, and the need for literacy intervention. And the latest results from 2022, so post-pandemic, said only about 31% of our fourth graders and 33% of our eighth graders are reading proficiently. So I'm sure your district has been talking about the NAEP results and lots of conversation happening, but from your perspective, what are two or three takeaways that really help us understand the challenges that teachers are experiencing in the classroom?
1: Sure. So obviously the NAEP trends of data is very concerning I mean, to look at what is essentially now 30 years of data that's been collected and to see that very flat line, which is low achievement, really, is very alarming. In 2022, when you think about 37% of fourth grade students nationally performing below basic, when you think that NAEP basic even just means that they can have partial mastery, of the knowledge and skills that are fundamental for proficient work in their grade area. You know, that really just strikes a person when you're thinking that we're asking classroom teachers to help the students raise to the expectations that so many of them don't even have that ability without filling the gaps. It's a lot to ask. And when you look at the reading scores, when they compared the percentiles, of where the drops were the most alarming you know at the 10th and 25th percentile you saw the largest decreases so mm-hmm. the students who already were struggling post-covid now have the biggest drop so we know that something has to be done to address interventions and bolstering our tier one instruction really tier one instruction as dr stephanie Stoller always will remind me is risk reduction so focusing on implementing a really strong and rigorous Tier 1 along with that system of supports with those additional instructional opportunities are where we're really going to be able to close those gaps. But I would definitely urge people to go to the NAEP website and investigate the socioeconomic demographic data. There's also minority student groups that you can see the difference in how they're performing. And something else that's interesting to make sure to look at, how are students with disabilities performing compared to those without? Because those are the students that we also have to make sure that we are doing everything we can to help them with their learning needs.
0: Absolutely. It is a great website and very easy to navigate and sort the data by all those different categories. And to your point, our teachers are expected to meet the needs of all of these students. And they have such a wide range of abilities in their classroom. And so how do we take not only a high quality tier one, right? When I was the director of intervention at FCRR and people used to say, what's the best intervention? And I'd say tier 1 right cuz that to your point is prevention risk reduction but these teachers are being asked to meet these students where they are and that range of abilities is getting broader right
1: well and what s- strikes me is i'm training middle school teachers right now in the reading science And I'm not going to say I'm old, but I'm getting older. And so some of the teachers really helped me recognize something that is also true of our families. If you look from the 90s until now, when the trends have been accumulating, we're talking about now generations of students. Because I have now teachers who said, you know, I'm learning this now as a teacher, but this is not how I was taught while I was in school. And then you think about parents that now have students in our system who also may not have had literacy instruction that aligns with research. So there's just all of these nuances to looking at that data over time that you really have to think about just what was going on in those different time periods across our country, especially considering that a lot of areas still have materials and pre-service teaching experiences that are out of alignment with research.
0: Absolutely. And I'd love to pull on the thread of the materials because in episode two, I spoke with Kareem Weaver and he raised the issue that most stakeholders know that literacy is important, but when there is progress, it takes clearly stated goals and and methods And he highlights that it's not only curriculum, right? That is really important. But you have to get teachers and administrators that training. They have to have the time and energy and budget and all of that. So when you think about, you know, after choosing a curriculum or even adjusting the curriculum, what are all those other things that are involved, when you think about MTSS and your current role, do you think those are the most important things when supporting teachers implementing these evidence-based practices?
1: So I'm very proud of the work that we've done in Bettendorf. We have a st- district strategic plan that really outlines our mission and our vision and our key priority areas. And that was designed both with our classroom teachers, our administrators, and feedback from stakeholders in our community and different groups of people. What I will say is that we started looking for curricular materials last year. No, I'm sorry, two years ago, we started looking. And I sat on that committee and I was still within the classroom setting before, well, I guess it would have been three years ago, wouldn't it? It would have. Okay, well, three years ago, we started the process. <laughs> it is
0: a process, right? And three only years. a
1: few of us had gone through the letters training, the reading science training. And as I was sitting at the table as a classroom teacher next to building administrators, instructional coaches, and other teachers that comprise the committee, it became very clear that as we were vetting the materials, even though we had a rubric that was put out by the Reading League to help guide our work, our conversations were not all in the same place. So we had people who were trying to bring past whole language, balanced literacy viewpoints into a shift in practice that were going to be supported by instructional materials. So it got to a certain point where it became very clear we needed to put a pause on that so that we could make sure that we led with the teacher training first, Before we tried to just provide the curriculum, because I think you said it, the curriculum is really not just the answer. You could have the best curriculum, but without teachers understanding what you're asking of them or why they need to shift their practice, there will always be either distrust in the curriculum or I'm going to shut my door and do what feels comfortable and familiar to me. And we have more of us that had gone through the training consensus happened which rarely is a thing with teachers and (laughs) so they were able to find a set of materials that was agreeable to everyone and now we're in our first year of implementing with those that said there's never enough time in my opinion for teachers to have the time with the materials to feel fully prepared to teach the lessons and look at the assessments And so we've tried to carve out very intentionally teacher teaming time where they could meet together across the district as grade level teams to intentionally make sure that they have at least some of the time they need to feel comfortable with their new materials.
0: I love that you guys realized that, you know, you wanted to pause because that underlying knowledge that comes from letters as well as other training or awareness of the science of reading, helps people understand the why, right? Of this shift. And I remember working with Dr. George Batch and other colleagues in Florida around RTI and MTSS and talking about that first step being that consensus building. And you said it's very rare right? But people need to understand the why. Otherwise, to your point, they're going to shut their door or they're going to just say, I'm going to ride this out. This too shall pass. You know, (laughs) the pendulum will swing the other way. But when there is the power of everybody understanding the why and sharing that language, that vocabulary and that knowledge, it then makes those next steps not Smooth because everybody is bringing a different perspective and a different lens, whether it's financial or elementary versus secondary. But I think that's a really important point for folks. And so maybe you could just talk about that idea of that shared consensus and how, even though it may have seemed like a delay in the process that was so critical. So maybe you could just touch upon that a little bit more.
1: Well, alongside the consensus building based on that knowledge, we had spent several years at that point since 2020 living in a constant reactive and uh, looking at intervention needs always. So a lot of time was spent thinking about intervention so a real chance to stop and say where can we make the biggest impact for students and to have a moment to recognize that again where they spend the majority of their time is within our tier 1 classroom setting and that means students with disabilities that means students with intensive reading intervention needs all of those students really need that opportunity to have a very robust tier 1 and my curriculum director Jamie Olson consistently would remind the team, "Don't think where they are now. Think of where should they be, and where are we going to help them arrive." And that kind of forward thinking helps them to take themselves out of that immediacy of intervention into forward thinking of how can these resources give every student opportunity to access complex grade level text and really solid phonics and word recognition instruction and that was really revolutionary for teachers because we hadn't been used to thinking that way because of so many things but a large part you know COVID forced us to feel that way as well so again yes it's definitely not a smooth path but it's the right path and so we're happy to be on it together Thinking through the work that went alongside of that, though, was putting structures and systems in place for a multi-tiered system of supports, because that was another component that I won't say was broken. We had interventionists. We obviously have special education services, but the intentional scheduling and the protected time for additional adults to come and support either core instruction or that Intervention extra dosage of time wasn't there across the board for all buildings and on all spaces. So, we've spent a lot of time really building capacity in that area, along with teaming at the district, at the building, and at teacher level, and then really putting things into place how to do collaborative problem solving with good data from progress monitoring to measure how the students are doing.
0: Right. Right. I I love the focus on systems and structures and being really intentional about that because again, the idea that also shifting from being reactionary to proactive, putting those systems and structures in place, that brings us to that concept of, okay, now that you have those things in place, we're gonna start implementing this. And a concept we've been exploring a lot is how to bring the research findings to the classroom and then in turn, bring those experiences of the classroom back to the researchers to enrich those findings and add context. So when you're thinking about implementation, thinking about the science of reading, because we know it's not finished or finite, right? researchers continuously adding to that literature. So when you think about that concept of that bi-directional relationship, like what are the opportunities that you see to bring research and our classroom educators closer together to make it more of a conversation, really?
1: Well, I'm hopeful that districts will become more aligned with reading science. There is definitely a movement happening across the country where access to the research is much more available than it used to be, in my opinion. I also think that, for example, my district superintendent, Dr. Michelle Morris, was instrumental in helping to bring research to teachers by giving that opportunity for training in it and I think more superintendents and curriculum directors and building principles, the leadership side needs access to the research just as much as teachers because the impact that they have on systems is so far-reaching. One teacher in one classroom can impact one group of students, but a superintendent who has the forward thinking to see the power of doing this at scale— Is one that I would like to see replicated in more spaces. That said, as a doctoral student at Mount St. Joseph, I see so many avenues for the teachers and the researchers to come together. For example, the way that our program is designed is for professionals who are still in the field to continue their work And there are different levels, SLPs. There are still people in classrooms or interventions. There are definitely cults, you know, the certified, how to say it, certified language academic therapist. Oh,
0: academic language. Was I close?
1: Okay. Yes. Yep. Yep. Well, my friend who is a cult is going to just think (laughs) it's funny that I got that all wrong. But anyways, we are all in these different, we're chipping away in our own little areas And so I think that's really important to see the avenues to take the research and get it into the hands of the people in the field. Then I also recognize that organizations that tailor their work to support teachers have a vital role to play. International Dyslexia Association and the Reading League are two that I know Mm -hmm. for sure bring journals and conferences and webinars and all sorts of things to teachers in a very digestible way, because what I have found in my studies, as I'm working with very wonderful people, so Absolutely. And definitely we need more open access options. I, so many things are behind paywalls. And again, if teachers can't even find the time to read and disseminate the research, Don't ask them to pay for all the things. So I've gotten really good at reaching out. I have access now to the huge databases, but so many researchers want that research to the teachers and will share freely if asked. So that's always really lovely.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, there's a couple of points there. The open access, that is a challenge. And I agree, a lot of researchers now, there's usually links where it says reach out to the authors they can share those, but I think trying to figure out how can we get some of that more freely open access. To your point, though, a lot of those journal articles might turn some people off thinking <laughs> of what research is, because there are some heavy, you know, intense ways of writing that. But like you said, the annals of dyslexia and the Reading League Journal are doing a great job of taking that research and making it more approachable and and user friendly so that is really an important piece for sure and the second thing that you said that is so striking is about having folks who are still in the classrooms and in the schools be able to go and get their doctorate degree right so Like I know for me, I was working at FCRR when I was getting my doctorate degree, but like that immediate connection of what you're learning in your classes and even doing for your research studies, right? You're like the immediate conduit because you're both the researcher and the educator in that moment. So I love that idea too, and making sure that some of our colleges and universities allow for more flexibility so that teachers can do that, right? Because there's so much on our educators' plates that it could be very daunting. I mean, doctorate degree just in and of itself is very daunting. But so maybe you could talk a little bit more about how you balance those two, because I think that is a special understanding that you have, that you bring to your doctorate studies, but also that you bring back to your students and your fellow educators?
1: Well, I won't lie, when I was looking into potential programs, Mount St. Joseph rose to the top for me for a lot of reasons, one of which was that I could stay working in the field as I went through the program. I multiple times said, Now, are you sure we can actually (laughs) balance a full-time job and the coursework? Yes, we promise you will be able to. And it it really has worked out that way. You know, and the nice thing is there are reading science prerequisite classes, and I was in their dyslexia certificate program. So I had a preview of how their course structure was laid out and how the work would fold into the current work that I'm doing. Now, that said, my work with Mount St. Joseph, my superintendent and my curriculum director, the people here at Bettendorf, they see the value of what I'm doing alongside of the work I'm doing for Bettendorf. So they have been very gracious with making sure that they support the types of things that I'm doing here with my doctoral studies. I think that it's very critical that when... Teachers look into getting a master's or a certificate or a doctorate if they so choose. We really need to be cognizant of making sure that they're spending their money in research aligned courses. I just was really disheartened when I have some student teachers who come to the district. They learn what we're doing, they see the resources we have they hear the teachers now talking about shifts in practice and they feel like they just were told the things we're moving away from. And so I would really ask that our higher educational institutions really look closely at where they are in this process and considering making some shifts for the betterment of all the teachers to come. Because right now we're willing to fill the void of what that might mean when teachers come without it, but they shouldn't have to do more courses and more learning when they're just got out of teacher prep, in my opinion.
0: Absolutely. I think a lot of the shifts that your district and other districts are going through, we need, and we've seen some colleges and universities start to make that shift, but absolutely, we obviously will have to address all the teachers' that are in the field now, but if we can prevent folks from, to your point, spending a lot of money on their college degrees only to find out that what they were trained to do, right? And that's part of this movement is, you know, it's not a blame game. Even college professors are teaching what they were taught to do, right? So this idea of let's not think about blame or look back, This is my Angelou, who originally said, when you know better, you do better. And so how can we support, to your point, institutes of higher ed to do similar work that the districts are doing? I think that's really important. And some focus has shifted to higher ed. Another area that I'd love to get your opinion on is adolescent literacy, right? Because a lot of the conversations these days are focused on elementary or K-3, right? When we think about learning to read, we think about those earlier grades. However, we know that our schools are experiencing a need to support those students who are in the upper grades, right? When we look at those NAEP scores, it's about fourth, eighth, twelfth grade students, So how are you seeing upper elementary and middle school classrooms impacted, whether from COVID and or this focus on science of reading?
1: So the students most impacted by disrupted learning from coronavirus pandemic are right now in their upper elementary and secondary portions of their educational career. So we have prioritized training our middle school teachers with Aspire, which is reading science for that group. And so this year, again, similar to how we modeled it for our elementary, we're focusing on learning and improved instructional practice with those bridge to application experiences that are also folded into that. We went through student-centered coaching for our instructional coaches. So that when you think about the job-embedded coaching that's needed to really make an impact, I mean, you can go to a lot of professional development, sit through it, take some of it in, but really, again, it's the application that's going to make the difference. So we're making sure that our instructional coaches feel equipped to then walk alongside teachers on a more of a day-to-day basis or through coaching cycles. But When we think about where the students are in those upper grades with some really still some foundational skills needs, they also need access to materials that will help match that need with the students shown deficit problems. And so we've purchased some extra things for those teachers. But it's really going to be another few years of really helping support teachers through those higher levels of needs and more significant needs that they'll see in the upper grades that really traditionally we would love not to have them have to remediate. And the further you get from those K-3 years with foundational skills, the more difficult it is for teachers to fill those gaps.
0: Right. Oftentimes you hear you may have the English teachers in those upper grades say okay that makes sense i want to go to that training but it really goes beyond english teachers right because i believe there was one study that said about 85 percent of our curriculum is taught through reading so when we think about content area teachers you know thinking about whether it's science or social studies reading comprehension in those content area teachers can also be a struggle. So how have you been thinking about supporting, along with the instructional coaches and the English teachers, what has been the plan for those content area teachers? And has there been pushback saying, I'm not a reading teacher, I'm a science teacher? And if so, how have you worked through that with them?
1: You know, in our secondary settings at our middle school and our high school, the building leaders there have been very intentional about helping them see that we are all teaching literacy in our different content areas. Now, is that a super easy thing for everyone to take on? No, because the science teachers do want to say, I teach science content. I didn't go to school to be an English teacher. I went to school to learn about teaching students science. So that's, again, another system level making sure they understand why doing this work as a collaborative team across those complex content areas will really only serve to benefit them when they are teaching their specific content area. You know, complex texts and the topics can be very difficult for students who have foundational reading skill gaps for them to navigate. So that's subject-specific vocabulary, it's text structures, it's the writing process. When students enter secondary settings with those kinds of gaps, every time they're in class, they are faced with feeling ill-prepared to meet the demands of what they're being asked to do. Alongside that, then, you also have a lot of social and emotional considerations that come into play relating to motivation and executive functioning And just being willing to continue to show up for something that you don't feel successful doing. And I often have reminded staff members, imagine you came to your job every single day for years and have not been able to meet the needs or meet the demands that have been asked of you. How likely are you to have a great attitude about doing those things? Yeah, and so I love when they that think,
0: analogy, yeah, when
1: they think about it that way, <laughs> it's helpful, but it's still a very challenging space to walk because there's knowing something and then there's doing something, and that's the difficulty.
0: Yeah, and I really love that analogy. In order to share their science content that they're so passionate about the students need to be able to access that information. So I think that is so important. And I think as our country is focused right now on that you know, foundational learning to read, we need to also think about those students who maybe had as thinking about it as like the foundation of their house, they have some cracks in that foundation. And if, as we're adding in the science, the social studies, the math, on top of that foundation, we need to make sure we can, you know, secure and shore up that foundation. So I love that you guys are focusing on those teachers as well as your elementary teachers.
1: Well, an MTSS, while it's more challenging in middle school and high school to put into place, it can be done. And I was just sitting with some middle school interventionists And helping them to see that when students have basic decoding, even if they're not fluent at their grade level, text level, we need to push into multisyllabic word decoding so that they can access those grade-specific content words. Mm -hmm. And so I'm so thankful for, you know, different materials that we can give to them that now align with that work that before... They kind of kept the kids, I won't say stuck, because obviously that was not their intention. But when you keep remediating at the level that's more an elementary, we just have to find those ways to then have them use those basic decoding skills and teach them about how to decode multisyllabic words so that they can get to their grade-level content words.
0: Absolutely. And again, when I think about multisyllabic words and... Even just the rules that, in fact, there's six syllable types. A lot of people don't know that. But how can we teach the rules, even just two open and closed syllables? I think, again, there was a research study that said I think about 72% of all multisyllabic words are made up of open and closed syllables. So even if you don't teach all six to those students, right, helping them know how to divide a word into syllables, and then determine if it's open or closed, it's going to help them decide if it's short or long vowel, right? Right. So those things, like you said, understanding the power of not trying to close the six-year gap in their one science class, right? But especially about science words or social studies words, breaking them into the morphemes, the prefixes, yes. the suffixes, right? Understanding multisyllabic. There are a few really powerful strategies that can be so helpful to your point that they can unlock that grade level content, even if they can't fully read that complex text, they can start to break it down and start to break down even at the sentence and in the, in the word level, right, with those strategies.
1: Well, and I'm going to go back to, it starts with teacher knowledge. As we are going through this training together, so many of these generalizations or these overarching rules that happen most often, you know, the teachers once they learn about them and the reasons for them, they said, huh, I never knew that. I never wrong. knew that. Yes. But, but I guess I just knew it. And it's like when you make something transparent for teachers, then they are more able and more apt to then teach it effectively because they understand it themselves. You can't give what you don't know. So if you just went about your business thinking you just must have always figured it out, You wouldn't know that's something that has to be explicitly developed and taught. So it's just a very powerful thing when you have the knowledge that goes with morphology or these advanced word study techniques.
0: There are so many things like why words are spelled the certain way, right, that you learn in these trainings. And I think another thing that people misunderstand is when people say, oh, English is not regular. It's so many irregular words and, you know, so few rules. And when it comes down to it, I don't know if it's as low as 4%, right? When you can get it down to like 10 or 12% and then even smaller if you take out certain things. So there's like really a lot of things, to your point, that we always just kind of knew or we didn't know there was particular rules and once they learn those, then they're more willing to share. So it's really exciting to see that light bulb go on for our educators so they can then share it with their students.
1: Well, and I will say I've set quite a few people down quite a few rabbit holes because what I love about a role like mine is when I do the trainings or when I walk alongside and learn something with them, they'll say hey, do you have anything else about XYZ? And then you bet I have collected teacher-friendly resources from research-supported practice that then I can say, yes, I surely do. Here you go. And I have become quite well known for probably oversharing resources, but I just will put (laughs) things on our running agendas. Hey, I heard that third grade's looking for this particular area of learning. Here are some things that you might want as a coach to fold into your coaching cycle. And so I think when you asked about how can we close the research to practice gap, we need more people in roles like mine that the person in the role enjoys collecting large amounts of information that then they have at the ready to provide when it's necessary or needed. And it's nice because then that is not something you're just constantly adding to their plates, You're looking for opportunities because a lot of times those opportunities come up in just conversations or an excitement about something new that they never knew existed. And then those are just ways you can just nudge the change instead of feeling like it's just coming down on them. It's just they need to feel like they want it. And when they see things that work for kids, they start wanting to do more of it. And that's really been a fun process to watch.
0: Yeah. And they request it, right? I love that you said resources that are based on the evidence, right? Because we know there's also a lot of stuff out there that is not based Mm -hmm. on the evidence. So having somebody with your experience and knowledge in that role is also critical, right? To make sure that the teachers are getting, when they ask for those resources, that somebody has vetted them to look, them, make sure they're based on that evidence. So that piece about teachers having a light bulb go off, having them ask for more examples, kind of to your point, send them down an exciting rabbit hole, right? (laughs) Not a rabbit hole that's gonna make them spin their wheels some more. So what else are you seeing that really makes you excited for the future?
1: Well, I think one of the things as a member of Mount St. Joseph's doctoral program There are three current cohorts, we're just about to do interviews for the next one, and there are 60 of us at different levels of where we are in their program, but also doing different jobs around the country. And we have an opportunity that's very powerful to see how different states, different districts, different organizations, all these different areas are approaching, again, kind of chipping away at undoing some bad practices that have unfortunately become a bit of our norm in our country and so that's really exciting to have access to that level of professional doing that work and then my professors are leaders in the field and they give so freely to us of their time and their resources and their mentorship you know I just went to a conference and I sat next to the researchers and I took notes for the actual researchers. And I think that seeing how excited they are, knowing how many years they have been putting into doing the work, and how frustrating that must have been over time to see that they have a renewed excitement and belief that we are on a path to really make this countrywide movement is really exciting for somebody in my little part of the world Alongside that, I just really think that the work of individual districts, speaking of, you know, when you see a system willing to recognize and acknowledge that where we were wasn't right, and to take some ownership and say, but we're going to do better and we're going to give our teachers more, I think is really powerful. So that all is really exciting to me. And I really look forward to a Time in history where classroom teachers walk into their classroom out of teacher prep, feeling that they have the knowledge that they need, and then feeling like they're going into a district that's providing them with the research to provide resources that align, that they can teach the students with. And so then, those two things you know, you have to have both, that then they right. can just move forward. And go through all the angsty feelings of being a new teacher, but not because <laughs> you don't have the stuff you need and you feel like you didn't learn what you needed to learn. So, absolutely, there's not- plenty
0: of other things they need to focus on, right? <laughs> have yeah. other
1: things to concern themselves with, those are not the things.
0: Yes, I love that. And we've talked about on prior podcasts that connection. And really, in one of my last episodes at the end of the year, with Dr. Shane Piasta at Ohio State University. She talked about in her research, actually finding an interaction, statistical interaction between teacher knowledge and high quality instructional materials. So I love that vision of a day when teachers walk in, they have the knowledge they need, they have the evidence-based resources. And then they can focus on all those other fun things like classroom management and learning all those 25 names in the first hour of the first day and all that fun stuff.
1: Well, and then they can focus on multi-tiered systems of support, right? They they know that their tier one is intended to meet the needs of the majority of the students. And they can then start using where the students are to make database decision-making for their small groups. And, you know, a lot has been said about losing the art of teaching because of the science. Mm -hmm. And I don't see it that way. I think that is short-sighted, and I think that does our teachers a disservice. You need the science to support the art. Well, always, teachers will find ways to make things still have art and interest. And I'm watching them with their new resources, and they're taking certain liberties with their extra days where they have culminating activities. And that's where they still have that freedom and flexibility in those intentional times to extend. But boy, you just can't underestimate having a solid tier one program. That is for sure
0: absolutely or when they say the science of reading is taking the love out of reading and it's like but students if they can't read how are they going to have a love of reading so i agree that it's not about taking the art or the love or the fun out of it but it's using those resources that have been shown through research to work and to be effective just a few more questions i've appreciate your time but i'd love for you to share With your listeners, you've talked a lot about the great program at Mount St. Joseph's. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Is it an online program or how are teachers able to investigate more? Because it is such a great program. And I just wanted to give you a chance to share our listeners about that.
1: Sure. So the reading certificate, the dyslexia certificate, and there's a master's level as well, reading science master's degree are all online and they're largely asynchronous for those three options there are some optional drop-in hours here and there for coursework but largely it's self-paced and it's really nice because again those also are designed for the working educator so they are semester classes you have one that you focus on for seven weeks It's accelerated, but it's manageable. I promise it's manageable. And then your next one is the next seven weeks. So if you're interested in the certificate programs or the master's level, you would have an opportunity to have a rolling cohort. They have more opportunities. The doctoral program opens once per year. Generally, those applications start being accepted in July, and it usually closes in early November. So one thing about the doctoral program is there's a summer institute that is required in Ohio, and it's a week-long, five-day work week. And it's like a nerdy sleepaway camp for grown-ups who love <laughs> reading science. So that's where the cohorts do get to meet in person. We get to collaborate together. And there is a institute for the public that then the doctoral students help put on the sessions for. So that's really lovely. Last year we had Dr. Anita Archer was one of our special guests. And so it's really lovely. We do a book study. Like I said, it's really a nerdy sleepaway camp.
0: (laughs) Great. All right. Thank you. And just as we close, for those teachers listening in We've talked about a lot of things here today. You've given some great advice and suggestions, but what is that actionable advice that you would give to teachers of the best way they can enrich the literacy learning for their students?
1: Sure. So I think we must acknowledge that teaching has always been a challenging profession and that COVID definitely raise the stakes for just how much teachers have had to pivot and adjust and make changes to their practice. But it's never been more critical and it's never been more rewarding. So I think we're poised to really move in this new direction together. And my biggest advice to new teachers or even teachers who've been in the field for a long time is to advocate for themselves and for their students and to stay informed about the latest research in both reading and learning science, right? There's more than just reading science that can impact their practice in other areas. Knowing about cognitive science and learning science is something else that's very valuable. Absolutely. I would definitely ask that they seek out Professional development. That is how I got started. I had to ask for it. You know, the change will probably raise some big feelings for you. Yes. I know I felt a lot of guilt and shame for a period of time about students that perhaps I didn't reach as effectively as I could have. Mm-hmm. And that was hard for me to accept. And I know it's not my fault. I know right. it's not my fault. I was doing what I was taught. And I was using the resources I was provided, but that doesn't change that I feel like if I could go back in time, I might make a different impact on some kids. So
0: absolutely. I had those same exact feelings that, you know, the guilt, the shame, wanting to go back. And I just think that is such an important part of the work. Like you mentioned, Emily Hanford's work, Sold a Story. I didn't often share my story publicly because of that guilt and shame, but for the work to continue for people to realize that you're not alone in this, And your point about, you know, you were doing what you were trained to do, you know, and I would stay at school till 6 p.m. every night and I was so dedicated and I loved my students and I loved teaching and being a teacher, but I didn't even know all the things I didn't know. Right. So. I love that idea and advocate for yourself. I forget if it was Babe Ruth or I don't know, more recently, Michael Jordan, that you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. So you're never going to get a yes answer if you don't ask. So I love that. And you are a great example of that, right? You were one of three teachers or, you know, Mm -hmm. at first you were the only teacher, then one of three, and then you wrote the plan and... Now it's district-wide. So that's just like an amazing example of persistence and dedication. So thank you for sharing your story.
1: Oh, of course. It's going to take that collaborative effort between the universities and between Department of Ed's and between policymakers and superintendents and curriculum directors with the teachers and the students and the families to work together to really make this Sweep across the whole nation and just become how we do business. We can do better together. We are better together. So it's an important thing to foster that team effort.
0: Absolutely. It really is a team effort. So I just want to thank you again, Rhonda, for taking the time to talk with us today. I'm sure our listeners are going to take so many great ideas back with them, the idea of leadership. MTSS, teacher knowledge, plus curriculum. So many great ideas that you shared, thinking about not only our elementary, but adolescent. So I really appreciate your time that you spent with us today.
1: Well, thank you for having me. I am excited to continue the work and to help in the areas that I can, for sure. Great. And thanks to
0: our listeners for joining Rhonda and me today. There is so much we can learn by exploring what is working, what challenges are emerging in the classroom around the country. So I'd love to hear from you what questions are being raised in your classroom and let us know by joining the conversation on LinkedIn. Our profiles are linked in the podcast description. So thank you for joining us and we'll see you on the next episode. Love this episode of the All for Literacy podcast? Subscribe, leave a review, and join the literacy conversation.